Everybody good? Hey, welcome to church. It's good to have you here. Um, So, I've been doing a couple weddings. Uh, I'm doing much fewer weddings than when I did college ministry. Uh, Our college ministry back in the day was called Baptist Collegiate Ministry, or BCM. And we also said that it it stood for Building Christian Marriages, because we'd have like 20 weddings a year. Uh, where students would come to college and they're in that phase of life and they'd get to know each other and they'd have the same vision uh, for the kingdom and we just loved uh, weddings and doing weddings. So um, I realized real quick that a part of my game, I had to develop some premarital counseling and um, some orders of service whenever we do weddings and things. And one thing that I noticed as um, we started uh, just kind of doing a lot of counseling and things is that a lot of people, considered by human history, we're getting married later and later. Like if you look at most of human history, people got married at like 14, 15, like you were old at 16, right? Like if you look at even like um, some of our grandparents and great-grandparents in here, some of you probably know people that got married at like 15 or 16 and had like 12 kids and... And they stayed married for like 80 years. You, anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm not being crazy here. Like the kids are looking at me like, what? Um, and so, like, that's just what they did. And I would argue that what happened when people married at like 14, 15, is that as they were developing, they fused together and they developed together. Like their philosophy of money and how they handled money I mean, it came from their families, but they were still young enough and moldable enough that they fused together and they kind of like, it, they figured it out together. Um, how they thought about children kind of, kind of came together. And what I began, because I was raised by my grandparents, I saw that in my grandparents and, and, and their siblings, which is like eight or nine siblings for each of them, it kind of saw this like partnership fused together. And then I went to my college campus and I'm doing marriage counseling, and sometimes the students were waiting till they were, you know, out of college, and they're knocking on the door of 30. And at 30, they've had well over a decade of sexual frustration, temptation for sin, all these other things. But what had happened is, tell me if I'm wrong here, they started to figure out which way the toilet paper goes. And it's, dividing point. And I'm using that one as an illustration because it's safe. Alright? Or folding the towels. Like you never knew there is only one way to fold towels. Put them away. And it's not your way. Alright? Which part of the bed do you put the sheet on first when making the bed? And so we get, what we do is we be we became our own independent people, and then we like moved in with this person that we married, and they're their own independent person, and now our perfect ways are butting up against all of their flaws. 
And, and here's the thing. Anybody that's been married over 10 years, talk to me. Are, is there not some things that you just got to let go? You just got to let go. You got to choose your battles. It can't. Now, there's some non-negotiables that I think the Bible's going to say. Like, we can't bend on those. But there's got to be some things that you just got to chill out about. Right? Leave it alone. And, and I say that in a family and the tension that can happen in a family because the same tension can happen in the church is that there are people in this room, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, big surprise here, they ain't like you. They don't do things exactly like you. And there's things that they're going to do for Jesus that you wouldn't do it that way, and, but they're trying to glorify Jesus, and goodness gracious, you need to leave them alone. You need to let some things go. Now listen, I don't know if Baptist on the front name. We believe in truth here. We're not talking about compromising truth. We're talking about allowing liberty of conscience as we express that truth. And I think that maybe, maybe today the passage is going to expose that some of us have some room to grow in getting along with others. And not dividing over things that are non-essential. Not making a mountain out of a molehill. Alright? So let's ask God to help us um, and convict all of us. Y'all in for that? Dear Father, hallowed be thy name. Be done on earth heaven. And God, build that kingdom. Build that kingdom even if it requires building it in ways I don't approve of. Build that kingdom in people that I might not like. God, build that kingdom here for your namesake, even if none of us here get any glory. Even if none of us here get our way. Even if none of us here get the credit, still build that kingdom. God, it's not about us or our ways that you should bend your will to man. And so come Lord Jesus and give us a teachable frame and a humble spirit that is generous with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of whom are gathering in other buildings and are in other denominations and um, do not have Baptists on the name of their church. God, make us a family willing to die on the right hills of truth, but that refuse to fight over and divide over stuff that in the scope of eternity does not matter. God, we need unreasonable amounts of wisdom and discernment and humility to be those kind of people. And so come, Holy Spirit, and have your way. Be the teacher and the pastor. Help us in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Uh, what book of the Bible are we in? Mark, right? We've been in Mark for like two years. Equivalent to your freshman year of college, like two years here.
Um, and so open, the, open your Bibles, if you've got one, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, starting verse 38. Let's jog a little bit. Last week we talked about there was this conversation about who was greatest. It was the Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali, whose greatest conversation. It's the braggadocious conversation. We said this. It was kind of cringe because in light of Jesus just saying, I'm going to lay down my life for the salvation of the world, they're over there having a debate about which one of them is the best. So he just kind of said, it's cringy conversations, and I'd argue maybe the title of this one is The Cringe Conversation Part 2. All right? Who's better, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, when the real answer is Bob Dylan? You know, like, these debates we love and place for them But there are certain conversations, like we saw last week, that arguments and debates, that even if we win them, we still lose. That even if our points are the best, and we win the argument, we still lose. And the argument about who is the greatest among us is the wrong conversation to have. But at the same time, Jesus does not condemn their desire or condemn the conversation about greatness as a thing to pursue. And I found that rather interesting. In fact, he takes their worldly definition of what greatness is and he redefines what greatness is and coaches them up about how to get there. And for some of us who in our cowardice and our bearing of our gifts and are not pursuing God, and are not serving others, we don't like, maybe, or we're intimidated by the thing that God is inviting us to, in the scope of following Him, to be great. Because we would rather hide. But Jesus instead says, no, let me talk to you about greatness. And I argued last week, and I think this bears repeating, we all love greatness. Like, you are not glorifying God or serving anybody by being a terrible spouse. You are not serving anybody by being or witnessing for Christ by being a mediocre employee or employer. And I made this argument. If you had to have brain surgery tomorrow, who here wants a brain that skipped class and is sloppy? Got a one star on Google. Oh, so you like greatness when it comes to brain surgeons. Right? How about the guy that works on your brakes? You want that guy to be mediocre, sloppy, cut corners? How about the person building your house? Right? When that snow load is 8,000 pounds. Right? So we understand that there is something about people being great what they do and there's glory in that witness to that but it's really not about you it's about using what gifts God has given you to serve others so we got in this conversation about pride and humility and um, being so embarrassed of our conversations that we're to the point of silence and egotistical things and narcissism and we just kind of dove all in to these things that all of us like, we got to kill, right? So, that's where we were last week. This week, verse 38 picks up in the same flow of thought. So, in the thought about humility and pride and greatness, John has just heard that teaching. Look at verse 38. 
John, this is John the Beloved, not John the Baptist. Probably Jesus' best friend. At, lived on Jesus' I ain't got friends like that, all right? And um, is at the cross with Jesus. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons, note this, in your name. And Jesus is going to affirm this, in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Okay? Pause. Let's talk about John here. We went through most of John's work. Went through the whole Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And I did the first couple chapters of Revelation. Wish I would have went through the whole book. But I think that if you were here for that study and you've got a grasp on who this, this dude John is, I think that probably what's happening here is he just heard Jesus dismantling and assaulting. He just got gut punched from a teaching about greatness. And John got convicted. I think his sensitive conscience is thinking back to a situation where he did something he felt was right in the moment, but now having walked with Jesus a little bit more, or spent more time in God's Word, and learned a little bit more at the feet of Jesus, the situation where he thought he was right, he now feels like he's wrong. Anybody ever been there? Like, we don't know that this happened immediately after. This may have been a year before. This may have been separate. Six months. We don't know. But here's what John's doing. He's in the Word with Jesus. And as he's in the Word, God gets a hold of his heart about how he's not been living the Word. And it's, it's, it's like freaking beautiful. Like, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever been in house church or studying or just meeting people for coffee, getting in the Word. Uh, but I've had this moment happen. And we're, we're chopping the Word up, whether it's to me or somebody I'm with. And we're in the Word and we're studying it. And then all of a sudden, you're reading something, you're talking about something, and it's just like, it's like a light clicks on. Does anybody get that? And you're like, oh, wait, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. That's, how, that's what happens to me. It's always like, wait a minute, wait, 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 we got to slow down. Don't run to the next conversation. Wait a minute, what did it just say? What did he just, what did he just mean by that? Wait a minute. And, and you're like, whoa, I, like, I am the kind of prideful person that wants to be served and thinks it's all about me and whether they're with us. I'm not the person that is serving others, even those as humble as a child. Whoa, wait a minute for a second. Let me back up. This is what John ha has happened to him. He's in the Word, and it goes from information to a light for his path. It goes from data, you know, which will one day be on a page. It goes from data into the words of life. See, he connects it in application to something that he's actually living. And it gets him. And he doesn't, he doesn't back down. He takes that mess to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, we were walking and we saw this guy and he was casting out demons and we tried to stop him. And there was an incident and it seemed right to me in the moment, but now that I know you the way that I know you now, there's, there's, I just feel like it's wrong. Man, I love this in Christians. 
Like they're not done growing. They're not done unpacking the garbage in their past. They're not done developing. John remembers an incident. And hearing Jesus teach triggered something that he remembered in his life. It's like if you think that the disciples are competitive jerks with one another, like in the Gospel of John, it has a foot race between John and Peter. And if you think they're competitive jerks with one another, how in the world do you think they're going to teach some guy that's not one of the twelve? And now here's a question. And maybe I don't know completely the answer, and it could be both. Is the disciples and John as their representative here actually upset by unauthorized ministry activity? Or are they envious because that dude is doing things in the name of Jesus that even in this chapter they failed to do? Is it really about unauthorized ministry activity and not getting the right cosign on? Or is it the fact that even earlier in this past, remember when we talked about the, the son that had the demon possession, and this one's only by prayer, which exposed their prayer life as unprepared? Is it really about unauthorized activity? Or is it about he's out there doing what they are, which some of us have never done, or out there doing what some of us have stopped doing? And so the man in the arena is out there doing something that us on the sideline are doing nothing but criticizing. And I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon in all of my history at church on envy. And how destructive it is. It's the ulcer of the soul. There are few who are doers. And they are the envy of the many who only watch. Envy, it's been said, is the art of counting another fellow's blessing instead of your own. Here's maybe how this would speak in our vernacular. Man, that guy just comes across to me wrong. Like, there's just something about him. It just, it just sits wrong with me. Like, I don't like that person. Which is weird. Because that other person also happens to be doing something that you're not good at. It's, ar- it's ironic we could build these cases against people we don't like who also happen to be, in this context, followers of Jesus, and yet they out there doing things that you ain't doing. That's just a little weird to me, right? Like comes across a little wrong. Here's, here's maybe the thrust of why this is the issue. We wanted to, notice in the text, stop him because he was not with us. As though truth is not determined by Jesus, it's determined by us. Whatever kind of us you want to make that into. So we're going to stop what Jesus loves. We're going to hinder what Jesus wants. We're going to be limiting. We're going to be a wet blanket, a sandbag. We're going to ride the brakes while God is stepping on the gas. And here's what Jesus responds in verse 39. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. 
I know that sometimes in here we come as Christians and we think about what do I need to do as a Christian to advance the kingdom? How do I need to serve at nursery or a one or a house church? What mission trip? What do I need to do in order to advance the kingdom? We're thinking about how do I get in the game and do something to advance the kingdom? Maybe first we need to start with Jesus is saying here, don't stop him. Maybe before we talk about what you do, maybe we just start with the basic assumption. How about you not stop other people that are already doing it? Amen? Like, let's not have a net loss because you're getting in the game. Because if everybody doesn't walk on eggshells and do things exactly the way that you do things, you are going to refuse to serve. And we'll, we'll just act like that's a hypothetical. Be careful feeling like your spiritual gift is the checks and balances, the wet blanket. Church, listen, the devil has enough advocates. It's about Jesus, and, he, and this guy is on the team. Jesus affirms his work as for his name. He's on the team. Because it says that he's doing it for the name. In, in Hebrew, this is Hashem. The, the idea of name is that someone's name captured all that they were, their person, their character, everything. So if you do things in the full name of God, you are doing things for fully God's glory. So when we talk about the name, it's really identifying the true historical biblical Jesus, and he's doing things for the name. And Jesus affirms it. And you almost want to pause and say, okay, wait a minute, what is the guy doing? Right? What is he doing? He's, in the text, casting out demons. So, I don't know if you've ever had this moment. Sometimes if you just ask the simple question at a church business meeting, what are we doing? Right? Like, what are we doing? Are you pro-demon? Like, you want more demons? Like, the guy's limiting demonic activity. I was like, are you, you want the opposite of that? Like, I, no, no, no. He can cast out demons as long as he does it through us and our ways and it goes through our system and things. It's like, yeah, but you come across as though you're pro-demon. Like, let that brother go out there and, like, like push back darkness. Let me just say it for some of us in here, and don't, don't nudge your spouse, don't, don't get in trouble here. But some of us in here are control freaks, amen? We just control freaks. And we micromanage everything. And there is some spiritual sin that can creep in through that control. Come on, man. Are you with me so far? Do you see what the issue is? It's not about us. It's about the name. Now think about this guy. We don't know who this guy is. No idea. There's speculation about it is, but I don't want to talk about speculation. But this guy, whoever he was, imagine you're out there and God has enabled you to cast out demons. All right? Um, I've prayed and I believe that God has used my prayers to push back darkness and that demonic activity that's happened in people's lives, but I have never seen 
demonic activity cast out like what possibly they're talking about here, so visible and active, right? So he's doing something that many people in this room have not visually seen done. I don't know. He just got bold hearing how Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth, and he's just out there preaching and casting out demons. Imagine him getting to see people who were oppressed by something we would probably give a clinical name to today, and something spiritually depressive and evil, and it's killing people. And he prays, or he lays hands, and that leaves somebody. Think about for a moment how he now has faith in Jesus' name, and how he's been used by Jesus. Now, imagine a leader, one of Jesus' inner twelve, coming, and I'm, I'm talking Judas here, talking the big dog, John. John comes up and says, yo, bro, you got to quit doing that. You got to come with, you, you, you got to be with us. You got to stop. Now, I'm going to argue, John is a believer. He's a follower of Jesus. You know, like, he's a genuine, true believer. And imagine if you're that guy, how you're like, man, somebody super important to me, someone with authority, somebody close to Jesus is telling me to stop doing what Jesus is enabling me to do in Jesus' name for Jesus' glory. That's messy, isn't it? And here's the thing with the guy. Does he quit? Now, here's the thing. Blatantly obvious, but I think we're stating. There is no Christian leader in the church besides Jesus who is perfect. There's no... I don't, you're going to read about him on Facebook. You're going to hear about him on New York Times. They're going to be on CNN. There is no Christian leader in the church besides Jesus. Praise his name. That is perfect. That does not mean that we distrust all Christian leaders. I follow Christian leaders. I just understand they ain't batting a thousand. When Christian leaders screw up, the difference is, and tell me if this is wrong from the text, when a Christian leader screws up, it limits the ministry of others. But when a Christian leader succeeds, it enables or platforms or helps the ministry of others. That's the nature of leadership. So what do we do? We just understand that when leaders whiff, when leaders whiff, we pray for Jesus to get a hold of them, like Jesus got a hold of John to show them how dumb we are without Jesus. Amen? And I hope that my heart and the hearts of anybody that is leading in any capacity in this church is just like John's. That when you whiff on it and you screw up, that you don't quit, but that you repent. Amen? You see that. So here's the thing. This is the guy. He didn't go to our seminaries. He's not in our denomination. He doesn't use our methods. He didn't ask permission. He's just out there doing ministry. He's maybe a part of a different church who does things differently. But Jesus is going to say, does he love me? 
Is he doing it for my name and for my glory? Is it working? And if so, man, this is, I want to say this as strong as I can. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. Because nobody can bash Christians online like so-called other Christians. We write more blogs about ourselves than atheists do. Nobody is meaner to our brothers and sisters in Christ than we are. you got to have some place in your faith to let other members of the family do what God has called to do. Do you realize they have a master and it ain't you? And they will answer to that master just like you. Leave them alone. It's more... This is how I've tried to process this. It's more about Jesus' name on the front of your jersey than your tribe's name on the back of your jersey. It's, there are, um, okay, so this gets into denominations, right? Let's, let's just talk for a second. This gets into denominations. Um, I am a Southern Baptist. This is a Southern Baptist church. Um, I could preach and pastor in churches that are not Southern Baptist, that hold to the gospel and hold to historic Orthodox Christianity. That's 100% true. I could. Now, I happen to choose to be uh, in a Baptist church because I believe that the doctrine that, this, uh, that our denomination holds is true elements of what the gospel is, and I can serve here free of my conscience. Right? I believe in our local church here, our covenant and what we believe here, I can accurately teach you the full counsel of God on our shared beliefs and doctrines. So, it matters. I, um, I love, there are some pastors that are Presbyterians, and I absolutely love their teaching. I think they're fantastic Bible preachers and teachers, and they're Presbyterians. And they baptize babies. And I don't know if you know what the word Baptist in Southern Baptist comes from, but it ain't John the Baptist. It's the fact that we do not baptize children, or what's called pedobaptism. They feel that baptism has replaced circumcision. I think that's an erroneous theological conclusion. I do not baptize children. Baptists believe that you should be a believer and that it is something that follows being born again as a witness to the believing community. They believe that you could baptize babies as a part of covenant faithfulness that goes in Old Testament circumcision. Let me say this. Both of us cannot be right. And I am not apologizing for my position that I feel like I can defend seriously and cohesively from Scripture. At the same time, if they preach the gospel to lost people in their domain, and there are people getting saved because they are saying what Jesus has done on the cross in the resurrection, I am thankful. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. And I think that a lot of people in the last hundred years have 
suffered from denominationalism. Now, in some ways, I, I argue denominations are not inherently bad. In some ways, they are divisions, and that is bad. But in some ways, denominations just express that certain churches in certain places emphasize different things or focus on or create stances on certain things and their local churches are allowed to do that the same way that our church does that not all denominationalism is necessarily bad but obviously it can be one thing that happened in the 20th century is a thing called landmarkism and i'm speaking mainly of mainline denominations like your methodists your presbyterians uh, baptists and these sorts what they started to, de- to do was Um, And forgive my Church of Christ friends in here, but we went full Church of Christ in saying we're the only true Christians. Right? Like, you got to be silent when you go to their corner of heaven because they think they're the only ones there. Landmarkism started to say, if you're not a part of this denomination, then you're not truly Christian at all. And that created all kinds of things where if you didn't cross every T and dot every I on every doctrine the way that we do, then you're not even born again. Now here's my thing. We believe in absolute truth, and there are some close-handed things about the person of Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, sin is sin, hell is hot, Jesus is the way, that we have a close hand that if you abandon this, you no longer have Christianity. So we're going to fight to the death over these essential issues. But we have an open hand on should you have drums or not have drums. Right? Can you dance or not dance? We can go, do you go to movies? Do you not go to Am I not in trouble enough? Homeschool, public school, private school. Right? Like... It's not that you can't have convictions of these. Matter of fact, please, with all of your heart, have biblical convictions about what you're doing. But these, about playing, do you play cards or not play cards, are not equivalent to the divinity of Christ when it comes to establishing historic Orthodox Christianity. Amen or oh me. So here's the deal. It's like we have got to, when it comes to the essentials, fight tooth and nail for those against culture or anybody else that wants to hijack the gospel. But when it comes to, does service start at 9 o'clock or 6 p.m.? Or we just got to have an open hand. And we got to, I don't want to quote Frozen here, but we got to let it go. There is nothing you're taking from the rest of the sermon. You're going to leave here indoctrinated by Disney. Because I can't conquer their songs. I love what St. Augustine of Hippo in uh, 354 to 430 said. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I think that's a great position to have. For us, kind of how, here's how we see, and we talk about this as elders. We think about levels of partnerships. You've probably heard the word evangelical. People are moving away from this word because it's come to take on nuances that not everybody agrees with. Is it evangelical politically? Is it evangelical? The word evangelios means gospel. That if you have the gospel in common, there's a movement that happened that said if we got the gospel in common, we have more in common than what we have divides us. 
And so what we'd say is, is we're part of a faith community all over the world that if they got the gospel and they got Jesus, they're brothers and sisters. That's the big tent evangelical thing. Amongst denominations within the United States, we, we here choose to be, right now, I mean, if the denomination goes to hell in a handbasket, we won't be this way. But as of right now, we're Southern Baptists. And we feel that that expresses our convictions about the gospel and about baptism and those sorts of things. And so we've, we've got a tent there. And then we narrow down. And there's things that are particular to this local church. That if you want to join this local church, here's what our mission is. Here's what our values is. Here's what our focus. Here's how we're spending money. Here's how we're trying to mobilize you. Here's what we're doing for missions. And if you want to get on board, this is what we're doing at this local church at this time and place. Does that make sense? A great way that I've tried to illustrate this, it's great because I didn't come up with it, um, is that you live inside of the United States, right? And you live inside of a state called Colorado, FYI. Uh, you may have came from the pot brownie store, so sometimes I've got to explain that. Um, you live in Colorado, and you can travel inside of any county in Colorado, not just La Plata, and you don't have to show your ID to leave La Plata County, right? And you can leave Colorado and go down, well, depends on the mandates. You used to be able to go down to New Mexico, and you could go down to New Mexico, and you don't have to have a passport because you are a citizen of the United States of America. That's still America. Some places don't look like it, but it is. You could keep driving and go to, not to California. You could go to Texas and they'll let you in. Everybody's going there, all right? And you could drive and you're still in America. But if you turn deep south and you cross the border into Mexico, you have, quote unquote, you've left the reservation. They have a different ruler, a different set of laws, and you do not have the freedoms and privileges that come the same as when you are inside the United States. Does everybody get that? This is the same. There are, inside of the kingdom of God, different states of which you go to their churches and there may be a pipe organ. And you go to the other churches and there's an electric guitar. But you are still, because of the gospel, because of the constitution that unites us, you are still within the kingdom of God. But there's a point, and I don't want to point over in this direction, but you can cross certain borders and you abandon Jesus and you abandon the gospel and we are no longer talking about Christianity. We're talking about a cult. We're talking about Buddhism, Mormonism, Islam. We're talking about something other than Christianity. And what determines that is not us, but Jesus. Notice, we are not the dividing point for truth. He drew the boundaries around himself and says... Inside of here, this is what divides who's on my team. I determine that, not Southern Baptist. Amen? This is where we're going to land on this. So he comes to them and says, don't stop them. Don't stop them. Don't stop them. Um, I, we served in France as missionaries for um, a couple years, and we served for like 10 years before that all over the world. And there is this really interesting thing that I, I want to share with you and I want you to think on this this week. When we have served in other cultures, 
that are less than 1% evangelical. Notice I just defined that term. They could be charismatic, they could be baptistic, all this stuff. Evangelical, we got the gospel together. Less than 1%. Overseas, we are always, always better team players. We've always been better team players. What that means is when we went to France, um, there was uh, a, um, we partnered with um, a guy that was a Baptist. His church closed down, and he started serving with Hillsong. Hillsong Church that writes a lot of the stuff. I am not theologically eye-to-eye with Hillsong on everything. But we got in there, and they were sharing the gospel, leading people to Christ, and doing things. And they invited us to come in and be a part of helping with and helping with leaders and training and we said absolutely these are brothers and sisters in christ even though we don't hold everything together we're gonna let's roll together and see how many people we could reach we did that for a while and then we worked with a group called acts 29 it actually comes from acts 2 9 um, but it's a very um, reformed um, evangelical community of french baptist that are there them and hillsong couldn't are on a spectrum of evangelical they're, they're at two ends of the tent. If it's a big tent, they're on two ends of it. And we ended up partnering with both. And you know what's interesting about that? I heard Acts 29 guys talking about things that Hillsong was doing, celebrating it. And I heard Hillsong people find out that Acts 29 was planting like multiple churches in areas that they had a church plant to, and they were so excited. Now, doesn't that strike you a little weird? Like, there, it's like more people are going to hear the gospel? Let's go! Like, they could see God at work somewhere else, and they can cheer. Now, that's not the way we're going to do things, right? Each camp, they did not change the way they were doing things. They both felt called to God to do things and land where they were landing. But here's the thing, when they saw the kingdom advancing in a place it needed to advance, they got fired up. And I love that. And you know what happened, uh, the opposite of that this week? Uh, We have people that were in our lives that some people will say, they will not come to our church because we are a Baptist church. And then I ask them, what is a Baptist church? And that definition is like, whoa, okay, cool. Had a conversation with somebody this week from in this town, had someone um, railing against the fact that we're a Baptist church or whatever, and someone saying something against Baptists and recruiting them to leave our church and to go to another church in this town. To which I come to this and say, it's like, okay, well, if, if that's better, I kind of have this position. I know that other elders have different ones, and that's fair. Is that if, if there is another church in this town that is better for you and your family to grow and develop and make disciples, by all means, get after it. But as far as those that feel called here and connected here, we're going to do our best to shepherd you, pastor, pastor you, and unleash you. And if you are already at another church where you are growing and thriving and, and moving, goodness gracious, isn't there enough lost people around us to reach that we ain't got to be stealing from each other's churches? But doesn't both of, isn't these kind of like options in the spectrum? We can either be like we are so many places overseas, looking for places to partner and celebrating when other people are reaching people, or we could act like we're in some sort of competition. 
or that it's really just about if you've got to be with us to be like the only right ones. Here's how I'd say it. Some of us at different parts of our lives have drawn an us versus them that Jesus just simply doesn't draw. There is an us versus them. It's the children of God and unbelievers. It's not that us versus them doesn't exist, which is what liberal progressive Christianity wants to say. Everybody's a child of God the same way. That's absolutely not biblical. There isn't us versus them that is the dividing point based on the gospel. What they're doing here is they're dividing an us versus them. They're drawing something God doesn't make a distinction for. And it's causing division. I, part of the reason why this guy, just as a side note, is always going to exist, the guy that's out there doing ministry someplace else than your church, the reason is because the kingdom will always grow organically faster than it will ever grow organizationally. Do you know why? Jesus ain't sitting around waiting for us to get it straight at a business meeting before he goes out there and saves people. The kingdom will always grow organically. They don't even know where this guy came from. It will always grow organically faster than we can keep. Now, as elders, even what we talked about last week is how do we add infrastructure, leadership, resources, maybe even staff, different things. How do we build the organization so the bones of the structure so that we can put more meat on it and try to keep up with some of the organic growth? We're constantly going to be playing catch up as leaders. Praise God. I hope so. The kingdom is going to grow faster organically than it's going to grow organizationally. And you're always going to have some strange dude out there doing ministry. Now, here's the thing. I think a lot of churches shoot themselves in the foot. And the way that they do that is, God saves somebody, gives somebody, and they are slow to either train them, coach them, or incorporate them. Let me give you a couple examples. Saul, the greatest persecutor of the church, gets saved. And you may not know much about the Bible in here, Christian, but let's just say that brother is gifted. He might be able to teach the Bible, plant churches, share the gospel. And do you realize that in the text, it says the organization of the church has trouble figuring out what to do with him? Or Apollos. Y'all ever heard of Apollos in the scriptures? Apollos, they go out preaching the gospel, and they take the gospel to the nations. They get out there, and there's some dude named Apollos who's preaching, but it's just a little bit off. How did he get out there? Who sent him? What team's he on? Nobody knows. He just shows up in the text. And they said that they had to teach him to teach the way more accurately. So they had to, here's the thing, Apollos, let me coach you up a little bit. You kind of, your doctrine's a little goofy. We've got to straighten some things out. We're going to coach you up and unleash you. The church is always organizationally going to be playing catch-up. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is not bound by these four walls. Let me, let me tell you something that's crazy in the Bible. Uh, and I know the Ignacio House Church went through Philippians, so they would know this uniquely. Is that in the Bible, Paul is talking about his ministry. He gets thrown in jail. So people start to say, see, he's not all that. He's in jail. God doesn't love him. His ministry's defamed. Christian people, they're on Twitter or Gitter. What is it now? Twitter or Gitter? It's both. They're on both. 
They're on Facebook and they're like, they're blasting another Christian. Exactly what I talked about. They're blasting him. He's in jail. And it says that they wanted to add pain to his already suffering. But God used him being in jail to preach to jailers and to spread the gospel even further. Paul responds about these people who, can we just call them haters? I mean, if that's what they are. They're looking at his ministry, they hate him. Looks at these, these haters who don't like him, are saying wrong things about him, that are Christian people. And Paul responds and says, I rejoice that they are preaching the gospel wider. Like, I don't know about you, but the people that criticize me and my ministry, I'm not, let me just be real, that ain't my first impulse. Anybody? My first impulse isn't, yeah, I, I know they talk trash about me, but do you realize that they preach the gospel every Sunday? Do you realize that they're witnessing to people, serving people? Who cares about, I mean, who cares about Paul? Paul's a nobody. As long as they're preaching Jesus somewhere in between criticizing me, I'm good. That is the most, I mean, talk to me here. Is that not the most mature, unbelievable, grace alone, Holy Spirit alone attitude that you could possibly imagine in the face of criticism? See, here's the thing. It's not about Paul. Or it's not about us. For Paul, it's all about the glory of Jesus in the name. And if the name's getting out, Paul is stoked. Talk all the trash you want. Talk all the trash you want. We've got to be careful, brothers and sisters, because our pride blinds us to the fact that the kingdom exists beyond these four walls. It blinds us. Now, uh, uh, let me summarize it, and then I want to move on and finish this passage. Here is, as best I can summarize, um, the, the danger of two ditches. One of these I've harped on a lot in past, and the other one I think is clear here. The two ditches is that we, on one side, would embrace false doctrine to have a false sense of unity. We'd embrace false doctrine about Jesus or the gospel, and we would have a false unity around something other than truth. False doctrine is one ditch. The other ditch is that we might reject true brethren. That we, they don't cross every T and dot every I just like us. And so because of that, we reject those who are truly our brethren and our sistren. I don't think that works that way. Brothers and sisters. A sistren is a different thing. So here's what we want. We want to embrace all that is truth. All that is essential truth. And allow it to unify us with everyone that is a child of God. Amen. All right. 39. There's only three verses and we haven't made it very far. All right. Uh, because he wasn't following us. 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one can do a mighty work in my name and soon uh, and will be soon afterward to speak evil of me. I don't know what to do with this except 
Jesus kind of having that blue-collar logic. Like, it's like someone doing a great work in my name wouldn't be able... They might, talk, they might disown me later, but they're not soon after a mighty work going to disown me. Right, Peter? You get that later. All right, speak evil. verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. Man, what a powerful summary statement. I, I want to combine that with what Jesus teaches elsewhere in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Um, and look at this this week if you get a chance. It flips, he flips it and says the same thing in, in um, a different way in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's saying the same thing in a reverse fashion. So point out the the note that I want to say there. The dividing point for all of history and for truth and for heaven and hell is not Colby Corso. Is not Southern Baptist or any version of us. It doesn't matter about me or about you. The dividing point of heaven and hell, truth or a lie, with God or against God, is what you do with Jesus and Jesus alone. That's awesome. All praise to His name. Then He he goes to this next thing that is curious. All right. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink. Now, this is the, this is the part that I sank my teeth into. And it, there's a lot here. Because you belong to Christ. What's interesting about this, Jesus is assuming that people could look from the outside of your speech and activity and know that you belong to Christ. They are making a judgment that you belong to Christ. It's not about you making that judgment. It's about people on the outside knowing that you belong to Christ. That's fascinating. Will by no means, whoever does this, will by no means lose their reward. So you're worried about greatness and you're worried about reward? Love my kids. Parents, don't you get this? That when someone treats your kids well and loves on your kids, they love you. Give them um, a cup of water. Note here that the philanthropic activity of the church does not begin with non-believers. That for me is tough. Because how many ministries do we think about and gear towards that first and foremost, they're meeting the needs of non-Christians? But here, there is a priority, and we could go to Galatians 6.10, that do good to everyone... But then it goes, comma, especially those of the household of faith. God wants us in our good works, in our philanthropic generosity and charity to start at home. Start with the family of God. Start with other believers. Now for me, that's, that's a little bit weird because I wouldn't have thought of that way. I thought maybe we should just do unbelievers and believers alike, just be good for everybody. And no, God says especially household of faith, and especially even a cup of water for those that belong to you because of the name of Christ. There is a unique witness that God has in ordering his family in such a way. 
And here it is. The Bible says that all men will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Arguably, the single greatest thing we can do to witness to the rest of the world about the gospel is not build bigger walls in our denominations, but build bigger dinner tables where we have people over and we make fun of their stance on speaking in tongues and let them make fun of our business meetings. Like, all men will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And so God says, before we talk about serving the whole world, why don't you serve your church? Why don't you serve the kingdom in your corner of the earth? And if someone belongs to me and you see Christ in them, in serving them, you are serving me. Isn't that awesome? It's intense. Now, what does he ask them to give them? Water. Water. If you answer Jesus, this is one of those times. Didn't work. He said, a glass of water. He did not ask them to do something Herculean in strength. Like, you don't got to be super strong to lift a glass of water, right? Does it cost a lot of money? You got to be Bill Gates to give a glass of water? It is the most basic day one act of hospitality that would have been expected in their culture. Everybody got water. Water is not expensive until the French decided to bottle it and sell it back to us. Because back in the day, the comedian used to say, we should drink out of water hoses in the backyard and it was clean, beautiful water. Now if it ain't Aquafina, you're probably getting cancer. All right? But water, everybody got water. Everybody's got to have water. A glass of water, comparatively, casting out demon, Jesus is going to describe that as a great thing, Glass of water, small. Is there anything smaller that you could do for someone besides a glass of water? Jesus doesn't say you have, he doesn't, he doesn't say you have to run a marathon in the desert, catch up to the marathon runners who are dying of thirst in the desert, and then give them water. It's not hard. He just says water. Give them, a, do something simple and small because they belong to, to do it for my name. Do small things for my name. And I promise you, you won't outgive me. If you give to one of my kids because they belong to me, I, as God, refuse to be outgiven by a mortal man or woman. I will reward in ways that are above and beyond what you're able to give even in a glass of water. Some of us, I think, in here have these huge expectations that God wants us to, like, cure cancer in our lifetime. Listen, if you're like a research biologist, please do, all right? But I think sometimes it's than what we make it, isn't it? Because there's opportunities to give the equivalent of a glass of water every single day. Eleven of the twelve disciples, eleven of the twelve, Jesus gives the offer to come follow Him, to come receive Him, to come follow His path to greatness through service and humility. He invites them 
to come follow him and see eternal reward, 11 of the 12 take him up on it. 11 of the 12. You are given that same opportunity to follow Jesus, to serve others and to be great. Eleven of the twelve took him up for that. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Matthew 12.30 says, Jesus, I would argue, did that greatest act of service by shedding his blood on the cross for sinners. All of our acts of casting out demons and giving glasses of water are responses to that gospel in worship. That's it. The message is that Jesus has served you by dying on the cross for your sin. He's buried that and rose from the grave that you might have new life, that you might live the kingdom kind of life that he's teaching us here. And whether it's a glass of water or it's pushing back darkness and casting out demons, the invitation is to come and worship. Let me pray for you. I mean, we're going we're gonna to pivot to communion. All across this room, I don't, I don't care that you're a Southern Baptist in here or that you belong to this church. Those things have their places. They have importance in their means. What I care about most is that you belong to Christ. And if you've never received Him, if you've never trusted in Him by faith for your sins, if you've never called upon that great name that has the power to save, I want to invite you today to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, believe on Him and be saved. If you're a Christian in here, And um, you're a jerk to your brothers and sisters. I want you to repent. It's hard to give them a glass of water and be a jerk to them at the same time. I want to pray for you and uh, if you're a believer in here and it's really going to center around one thing and it's this week you're going to have a thousand opportunities to give someone the equivalent of a glass of water because they belong to Jesus. And I want to pray for you and those opportunities that your eyes would be open to them and that your faith would stand ready and that it would be for your joy and God's glory that somebody else this week is going to drink a glass of water. So dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. We praise you because you are mighty to save. You save prideful, selfish, egotistical, navel-raising, self-absorbed, selfish people like us. And you make us 
centered on your glory and passionate about serving others. And so God, would you come here if there's even one who hasn't trusted you and would you save them according to your great name. And for my brothers and sisters that are here in this room, who you are setting them up this week to give the equivalent, do something small, do something simple, do something for the name of Jesus. God, would you, even now, give them ideas, give them leaning, give them prompting. God, may tons of worship happen this week because of your word. As your people go out to do things for your name. God, enable us to see the great act of the cross and to respond accordingly. Pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. We're going to pivot in a time of communion. Come on, Jared.